All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. It's tonight we're doing another one of our uh, live uh, book club events. Um, we're recording this on April 10th, 2011 at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, if you want to hear any of our live um, recordings, you can head out to ustream.tv and do a search for a Mormon Expression, and there you can find a schedule of our upcoming live broadcasts. Uh, one note of change, we do have um, our feedback episode listed for next week on April 17th. That has been moved to May 1st, I believe. Um, but if you check the schedule, you'll be able to see. All right, so um, what else do we need to announce? Um, sign up for the cruise. Oh, yes, the cruise on uh, January 27th of uh, 2012. Um, if you go to the website and follow the link, you can get um, a link to our travel agent who will help you get everything squared away. We look forward to uh, seeing you there with Zilpha and I. Um, and, of course, the live event on August 6th. Um, I believe we are now settled on our location. Uh, Robin's giving me a frowny face because she doesn't like my location, but it will be at the Avalon in uh, Salt Lake City, which is 3600 South on State Street. Um, we will have a way to purchase tickets here up on the um, board in a little bit. If you want to reserve your tickets early, you can send me an email at John at Mormon Express, and I'll get you on the list. Tickets will be um, $17 advance and $22 at the door. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me funny. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't know we settled on that yet, but I, I, I had a vision in a dream. Last night, <laughs> so it's all settled. There better be punch and cookies. <laughs> I don't know that food or drink is allowed. at said We have theater, to find but, that out. Um, there is, um, um, no alcohol, um, and it's probably PG-13, I'm guessing. It's an all-ages venue. That's Zilf, one plus. Zilpha's got a potty mouth, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, tonight it's the three of us bringing it in. Um, first of all, we have Zilpha. Hey, Zilpha. Hello, everybody. Um, Zilpha, did you read the book? I sure did. You read it more than once. Um, actually, no. Maybe like once and a quarter. And then we have Robin. Hey, Robin, welcome back. Happy to be here, John. And you read the book, too? I did also. All right. I, I also did read the book this time. <laughs> so um, it helps. We, we should all be ready to go with this, uh, this masterwork. All right. So when I was trying to set up the book club, I was trying to pick a wide range of books that dealt with uh, Mormonism. And um, this is probably the oldest and maybe, dare I say, the best known piece of Mormon fiction and probably the best-known piece of Mormon fiction that you've never heard of, <laughs> most people are, are thinking of. Um, this book was written by Nephi Anderson. Um, Nephi was born in 1865 and wrote this book in um, 1898, um, and it went through five printings, and then he updated it in 1912. Now, I did not myself see a pre-1912 edition. Did either of you? No. Nope. And this book has been in continuous printing from 1898 until today, where you can still buy a copy of it. Um, and so it has flooded the earth, literally, with this... Uh, well, not literally. <laughs> but there, 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 Figuratively. There's, there's a lot of copies of this book floating around. Um, 
And you know, if you go down to the DI, you'll find one there about every other time you look. So, so, so they are out there. And I think Zilfa, you had a um, a link you posted a little while ago to yeah, a actually, free version. Yeah, there's a few of them on online literary yes. um, down or yeah PDF files and stuff like that. That's just on the internet for free. So, so um, uh, first of all, um, I th- th- this book is really important doctrinally because it sits in a transitional period now if you remember your your history um of course we we had like the edmunds tucker act which was sort of around the time that that good old nephi was born so his whole early life he was in the lived in the era of the mormon underground um and then by the time he published the book you know the manifesto had come out in 1890 that um polygamy was halted in the temples and we were really in a transitional period between that church and the, the modern church. And you'll recall that in the, the um, first um, decade of the 20th century is when uh, they brought in the theologian, um, oh, my mind just went blank, Talmadge, to sort of reconstruct Mormon, Mormon doctrine and Mormon um, teachings to sort of get rid of all the old-timey beliefs. So we'll come to that a little bit more because I think, that was really interesting because there were ideas that I didn't realize were as early as 1898 that were, that were solid as, as he gave them. So what we really get is a, a sort of a, a view into that important time in the church when we're, we're in a transformation from that, that earliest phase to what we now know as, as modern Mormonism. So the book is, the book is important that way. And the second thing that's important, we'll, we'll get into this in detail, is it unashamedly um, talks about the doctrines that are uniquely Mormon, and um, and gives them a personal face. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we've mentioned this book twice before in the podcast, I believe, um, and I think the first time we mentioned it was um, when we were talking about Saturday's Warrior. It's like the first Saturday's Warrior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the ideas that that came up in Saturday's Warrior of the you know the preexistence and this love and romance that spans these you know pre-life and the life estates. and then death and, and all the estates. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't originate with uh, Lex Alzevedo. Right. But this is probably added upon. It's probably the first time that that, that someone took um, a fictional approach to those doctrines. The, the first one that I know of, um, I, you know, I assume there was f- fiction floating around. I don't know. Before. Well, wouldn't they all have to be somewhat fictional since we wouldn't exactly have first-hand accounts <laughs> yeah. about the pre-existence that I'm aware of. Right. Yeah, uh, but I, I think, you know, by that we mean that the um, the portrayal of this, like, doctrinal narrative okay. in, in a story form, you know, and which which even today, you know, Mormon literature is, Mormon literature, Mormon, the arts in general is not real developed. When you, when you take, and this is something I've said before, but when you take the number of Mormons there are in the United States and compare them to other groups, that have similar numbers, um, they'll have you know a, a mature um, you know literature venue. They'll have film festivals. They'll have all sorts of things, and and Mormonism when when we get into the arts tends to balloon and then collapse on itself in spans of like ten or twenty years. Hmm. Typically, what makes art great is that it pushes the envelope. Uh, what's acceptable? It shakes up the world. It shows you something in a new way, and you can't do that and stay 
um, faith-promoting and, you know, with the status quo. You're not going to shake people up that way, which is why, for me, for the most part, uh, writing and art in the LDS world really is pretty kitschy. Um, you can go to Notre Dame, you know, which is which is a, a Catholic-run school, and you can find people publishing books that challenge all sorts of – like how many people would read a book like The Chosen? And say, oh, this is challenging Judaism. This is challenging orthodoxy. Oh, right. Actually, Kayim Potok is a wonderful writer, and I've heard him speak in person. And so, um, and of course, Judaism, it has a strong history from what I've heard from some of my friends um, that practice in Reformed Judaism that, I mean, they have a strong doubt tradition. It Having the doubt and asking the questions and struggling is respected part of Judaism. It is... Not so much in Mormonism. For instance, when we're talking about um, Levi Peterson, where he said, you know, you could should be able to talk about sex, um, body functions, all all that is part of life and is what makes um, great fiction great. Whereas it seems like a lot of that um, isn't considered, you know, polite or okay to include. Um, yeah, but with even, the mainstream even short of that, it's not at you all. know, like um, even short of like sex and violence and stuff, there's this bubble that they wrap around um, literature. And by the way, um, this book really doesn't challenge anything. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It, it, um, it, it's so. It's, do we it's do we real. need to explain the title? It's a scriptural reference, right? Um, they who keep their first estate shall be added upon. So that's where added upon came from. Right. So let's let's go into the kind of the general um, story arc. The the book starts in the pre-existence, and then um, comes to this world, and then goes to the spirit world, and then ends the last the section four is during the millennium, which is the strangest chapter to me. Yes, definitely. Um, it was the most fascinating. It chapter was definitely. To me, but... I've got way more markers than that. <laughs> so chapter the pre-existence, than then else. the mortal world, and then the post. Yes, the millennium. We don't world. even make it to the. The biggie. It ends just yeah, before. Yeah, never get to the celestial. The earth is cleansed well, just, and, and every the earth is burnt to stubble. And what happens after that? I mean, it's kind of like the end, you know. No, happily you get, ever after. Well, but it might be fun to explore that through fiction too. Yeah, but how interesting would that be? I don't know. Actually, they made the millennium kind of interesting, but maybe we don't yeah. want to talk about that yet. Yeah, save okay. the exciting stuff for the end. <laughs> so, so the st- story. Involves and and I have to say, um, you know, this was written a uh, hundred and ten years ago or whatever. It's it's not particularly well written. <laughs> um, um, not at all. The the characters are not really strongly developed, and everybody is sort of it's sort of melodramatic. You know, the the good guys are all really good. He doesn't really have a lot of bad guys, but they're no, just sort I, of cardboard cutouts. I, I thought there was some depth to the characters, and and uh, apparently when he originally wrote it, it was even a lot less detailed about the characters and he added details for his um for his second or third printing. Anyway, he, he, he added a lot for the fifth. For I the believe. fifth. Mm-hmm. So so originally he was just kind of doing more of a very general story and he added more details because people wanted more. People wanted to to have more information about the characters and and their families and stuff. But I didn't think it was so kind of black and white characters. Um I thought they were Besides kind of Lucifer. <laughs> yeah. I thought they were kind of um more round. There there were good things and bad things about about uh, most of the characters, I thought. Yes, and I remember um I can't cite a page where um 
some of the discussion is it isn't so much that people are evil, but, you know, weak, Mm -hmm. you know, lazy, Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. So that seems to be a nicer view of sin. Um, Yeah. One of the individuals out in the um, chat room says that that they had a hard time figuring out who was who. I did when they too. had different names. And, oh no, kidding! And that's and that that's what I, that's what I, I that's part of my point is in the preexistence they have their preexistence names. Yeah, which was um, for the main couple was Delsa and Homan. Yes, and and then you don't learn until like the seventh to the last page who those were. But there's not enough clues like given. No, there's, there's no, no clues. There's no character from the. And there's more than one couple going on in the earth. Uh, you know, in the earth life. So you're like, okay, so who is Delsa and Homan? Which right. couple is and this? Right. Yeah, yeah. On second reading, it makes a little more sense, um, at least as far as the, the Volmer character who had been Sargon? Uh, Sardis. Sardis, excuse me. Um, because, of course, they did a lot of talk about the music. But when you're getting all the preexistence stuff, that was the very most awful, worst part of the book. You know, it used the ye will... Mm, this and that when, it was it they hard to make it through talk. yeah they spoke in well, see, and I think that's why I was so clueless through the first probably through my first reading frankly because that first chapter gives you so much information and when it's written so horribly although it got much better I think yeah. once it came to earth life um, the writing was much better it was a, a tad more active not quite as passive as the first chapter and I'm not sure why godly speech is passive tense because it's horrible, it's boring, and who likes to listen to that? Now let's before before we, um, you know, viscerate it too much. It is oh. <laughs> much better than the scriptures. Yeah. I'd rather read Nephi Anderson than Joseph Smith any day. Oh, definitely, um, I agree. I agree. So um, so he does. It is much better than the Pearl Great Price. So if you're having trouble understanding the Pearl Great Price, hey, get yourself a copy of Added Upon. So they basically start out with the war in heaven and Lucifer leading people one way and and others following the savior and of course um delsa and homan follow jesus and and the the volmer character sardis who, who robin mentioned he's a he's a musician and he originally follows lucifer and then changes his mind um doesn't he? Yes, he does. He then changes his mind, and they're surprised when they see him after the little war in heaven is over, and he's with them. Yay! Yep. So, um, and that's pretty much all that happens in the pre-existence, that, um, except for Delsa and Homan kind of fall in love, and yes. they speculate about the earth life a little bit, but not in like any real terms. It's all more scriptural language, you know? And wasn't it beautiful, the description? And, and I guess this is part of the thing that uh, Harkins or Saturday's Warrior harkens to it, um, where it was talking about Delsa sitting and she was looking at all the men in the throng and taking each little piece of them and, oh, that's not quite right. That's not quite right. And then she assembles all the best and all of a sudden there we've got Homan and he is the picture <laughs> that she was looking yes, for. Yes. That connection. Yes. Did you guys catch the, um, the paragraph about the blacks? Um, I did at the end. Where, uh, there's where- one on page 18. Um, then there were others, not valiant in either cause, who stood on neutral ground. Without strength of character to come out boldly, they aided neither the right nor the wrong. Weak-minded as they were, they could not be trusted, nor could Lucifer win them over. Oh, man. Oh. So, there's there's an early Of course, he doesn't to... say that, they're, that they would be the black ones, but well, as Mormons, hey, we know said... the doctrines. That so. would be the equivalent mm. of saying, 
nowhere does it say that sunbeams are three-year-olds. Everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah. you, don't have to, you don't have to say it. I mean, it's, it's an ever-present doctrine. It just I shows think up that everywhere. falls into assumption, John. But it is assumable in this context in yeah, the I know, late eighteen hundreds. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean it's he it's didn't have stated to say over and over, and over and over again. In, in so, is Dark it just Beaches. black, or do you think there's anyone else that would be included in that group? Well, for Mormons, it's just bla- it's. Well, what about well, the Lamanites? Well, for for nineteenth century Mormons, they used it to excuse just about everybody else outside the European world. So they weren't necessarily denied the priesthood, but they were all sort of others, you know, the less, you know, because you have to explain, okay, well, if this is the true church, then why are there a billion people in India and a billion people in China who, you know, have never heard of it? And apparently God has never made any effort to contact them. You you have to have some explanation, even back to the 19th century. Well, what did Brigham Young say? So if we were reading that a year or so ago, uh, that, um, he said uh, in the afterlife, the Chinaman would wash the dishes, basically. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, if you're even a little sensitive, you have to explain why the rest of the world's not involved. Um, and, uh, you know, there was the doctrine of the they're all descended from Ham or whatever, and there you go. So, so why would somebody from their first estate, who apparently vanquished Satan, come down to, to uh, be in a position where they couldn't get the gospel? You have to have some sort of explanation. To me, it's not an unreasonable assumption. Um, and I think it's still probably implied in the doctrine today, although they wouldn't. Uh, matter of fact, I had even was even talking to somebody at BYU back when I was a student, and they said, "Well, yeah, that was true then. The blacks before 1978 were unvaliant, but that's not true now. But there are people who are unvaliant; they're just born into different avenues where they don't receive the gospel." <laughs> hmm. So, it, I mean, it's it's not it's not a dead doctrine. Um, he does have an interesting view of this pre-Earth life. It's it's more um, developed than like the Saturday's Warrior version, where there's trees and there's, I mean, it's not just clouds and, and people walking around. Um, and right, he says, the vastness of the spiritual world held enough for study, research, and for occupation. So he, he kind of saw it as the pre-Earth life, like an Earth-like existence, but just not, just not mortal. Yeah. Then, then afterwards, in the spirit world, um, one of the individuals is is tending to his rose bushes. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I, and that's what and I. They had actual houses. Well, in, and, the, in the, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention as part of that, um, the idea that animals and plant life and everything existed in a spirit form as mm-hmm. well as a mortal earthly form. Right. Which, although which, nobody was slapping mosquitoes in the. In the pre-existence, and at least not in this um, story. Well, but. they were perfected. They were kind. And I, I thought he did a reasonable, a reasonable good job of explaining. You know, as the characters are interacting in the pre-existence, you know, there's male and femaleness, but there's no like sexual attraction between the two. There's no, there's no sense of attraction in that first thing. Well, they there can, is a little. Well, he implies that he likes being around this person. But, yeah. you know, they specifically state that they don't have the desires and, and those sort of things they'll get in the mortal. Yeah. Homan had often, um, thoughts had often been with the fair sister, Delsa. Then right. he says, but but why should it be so? Exactly. He didn't know. Delsa was fair, but so were all the daughters of God. She had attained to great intelligence, so had thousands of others. So wherein lay the secret of the power which drew him to her? Right, right. Mm. <laughs> so, so he was drawn to her, even though maybe he didn't have an, an idea of what you know so sexual is, attraction. This is what was. I really loved about the book is where you have these abstract sort of doctrinal ideas, like okay, you have free agency in the pre-earth life, but what does that mean 
and then you didn't have a body, so you didn't have physical uh, physical desire. So how would that play out, and how would that be different than than this world? So you know, he sort of toyed around with that idea a little bit, which was which was sort of interesting. Yep. And so then they um, kind of get their appointments to to go to Earth Life, and um, and then the part two starts with yes. no explanation. They so as soon as they leave the preexistence, then. Then Earth life but begins. I, I, Are I, you not I, done with the preexistence? No, no, I'm done with the preexistence. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I think Nephi was trying to do that to like um, as an implication of the veil, right? Yes. It's com- a complete mystery who you were before you got here, right? And so we don't know who they are. Yeah, I, I think that was in, that was intentional. That you know he wanted them to, the reader to you know feel that same sort of disjointedness. Well, I think that, the that was would. you know fairly good um, device. It may, it was sort of a mystery as I was trying to figure out. So who is Delsa and who is Homan? Because it wasn't at all clear. Right, right. And I, I, I think that was intentional. If I were writing the book, and since I'm a world-renowned author, <laughs> I would have, you know, if I was writing the book, I'd probably rely on lazy sort of storytelling things we do now, like flashbacks. So maybe his would be better than mine. But I would try to like throw hints about the characters. That's and, what I would do. And how exactly, you know, because he did imply that they were sort of, you know, there were noble spirits. And, and he has a scene in the beginning where they check, you know, they, they, they're trying to find people to do a certain role, you know, so they can help bring others back. And so he implies that, you know, it's not oh, just random chance who you're born with. There's a there's character there. I think Sardis yeah. was pretty clear, though. I really enjoyed. Uh, you could tell who he was. Just because they talked about him, you know, that oh, was yeah, part that, that worried him clear. is because he was spending so much time with music and you need to be well-rounded and mediocre at everything. <laughs> what you were just saying, um, I guess I wasn't done with the pre-Earth life. I remembered where I um, read that other part about the, the blacks or that made me think of the blacks is that a messenger approached a group of people and said that they were looking for um, someone to go to be kinsmen with a certain family of earth children who had fallen into evil ways. Um, He said, not being very strong for the truth before they left us, their experiences in the other world have not made them stronger. This family, it seems, has become rooted in false doctrine and wrong living, so that those who come to them from us partake also of their error and unbelief of the truth. So they wanted some really stalwart people to go join their family. We we learned who that was it who that was in the in the last chapter. What? It was it was the the woman who never got married till the afterlife. Remember because the veil parts and they see that they remember that. So it scene. was Rachel. Yeah, I believe so. Hmm. I'd have to go pull that that I didn't mark that one. Really? Yeah. Because she was shunned by her family. Remember when her cousin? Anyway, we're getting into oh, dirty dirty details. Yeah. Um. So the book centers around a couple of different couples, and it 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 goes from the west. It actually starts in an undescript Rocky Mountain town that's not a Mormon settlement, but sure sounds like one. Mm-hmm. They're burning sagebrush, and they have like dugouts and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And they've got ravines and mountains, and and then they go back and forth between um, this place and Norway. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so and it, it's your standard sort of Mormon tale of people. Joining the church and and then finding their relatives and running into other people who joined the church, sort of the same thing you see in the work and the glory, um, that sort of character intertwining. And there was a huge focus throughout the book on the temple work and the importance of um, 
of genealogy and yes. getting the work done for your for your dead ancestors. Right. Yeah. And a lot of that makes a lot of sense. Um, according to Nephi's, you know, background, of course, he was born in no- Norway. They emigrated. Um, he did work. What was his genealogy work? Anyway, part of his time was spent with genealogy work, and that was a big... It was important to him. Yes. Yeah, and when he was a young man, there, you know, a, a very young man, there wouldn't have been any temples at the, at the time. At the time this book was written, there were four. Yeah, there were four. But it man. says four in here. Yeah, that's the number. Okay, so, so it, and it would have been it, difficult to, to get to the temple. And, and he even plays out some of that characteristics. Like he has characters that go to the temple and then don't get back for 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years. Which which would have been which would have been common at the time. I was reading a little while ago that there was a member of the seventy in the nineteenth century, and he was in the seventy, and it turned out he'd only been to the temple once when he got his own endowment. So that wasn't that that odd. They were hard to get to, and if you didn't live around them, you know, you didn't get to them at all. Yeah, but um, his one of the big things in the work is about that temple work because it 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 has relationships um, in front of and behind the veil. But there is a sort of a weird thing that happens in the afterlife. Um, the- yeah, well, let, let's um, just kind of help our listeners get, get um, oriented. Rupert is the Earth name for Homer that we met in the preexistence. Homan. Homan. Mm-hmm. Homan. Homer. <laughs> <laughs> and then Del- um, Signe from, from Norway was um, Delsa. And so Rupert and Signe end up together in the earth life, but not for very long because Rupert dies after they have four kids. And then, um, so Signa lives out the rest of her life without marrying again, yes. um, raising the four kids. But there's another couple, um, Heinrich and Marie, and she dies and um, Heinrich remarries. And with Heinrich, um, the interesting part in Norway is Heinrich and, uh, and Signa, Heinrich was after Signa. He had lots of money, and and he just wanted to help her and have her. And for whatever reason, I don't I don't know. She she took off, and uh, he she just sent, wasn't into him. Yeah, wasn't into him, and she took off um, to the Americas. And so then Heinrich Heinrich, it's what happens to him later, and he meets missionaries. He's converted. His whole family turns against him. Um, right. All four of the people of those couples were converts. Well, I think that um, Nephi includes those in the book because he very strongly believes in there's a destiny. There's You're destined to be with somebody. You're destined to marry somebody that's kind of foreordained. Um, and he plays that out in, in the, the afterlife mm-hmm. very much. But the reason he put that relationship between those two when they were in Norway is to show that, because he kept saying, well, he's nice, but she didn't just didn't feel right about him. And he talks much about that. And and he specifically in several places makes it a distinct from romantic love that there's this some this like eternal holy attraction something that you can't quite explain but it but it's there when you when it's there you know it right right and that and that's the this thread that still runs through Mormonism and I I brought up in the beginning I was talking about um, this transition and when you read 19th century views on celestial marriage and marriage in general it's very kingdom oriented. Um, dynastical, and they actually deride both the, the the women and the men in the writings of the time deride romantic love. They say it's a it's a weakness and it's that. And I think here Nephi's playing that thought just out to its its very. End. He's on the very end of the tip of that idea in, in Mormonism that 
you know, we, we have these re- eternal relationships that are beyond this sort of infatuation. And, Cause it's something they would say to the young people all the time. Cause, you know, they're marrying, you know, young women, especially off to older men. And they would try to dissuade that, mm-hmm. that romanticism that, you know, in the, in the uh, Victorian and the Gilded Age was still, well, Gilded Age was a little bit too late, but the Victorian area was still around and you had to sort of squash that because they didn't want the young girls married the young men. They wanted to keep them for the old men. Right. They're all this, like, the same age in the eternities so you know what's 40 years give or take <laughs> on the uh, but, earth but yeah more important than that i mean if, if you're a 22 year old woman with three kids and you live in panguitch and your husband's living up with his three other wives in salt lake th- that's not a very romantic um situation live. yeah situation <laughs> in life so you have to sort of quash that those 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 natural feelings yeah but i got the feeling that that nephi was a bit of a romantic well that's that's my point so that's the 19th century mormon view and then the 20th century that you can see now is this hyper romanticized that we've talked about especially some of the sex podcasts where everything is sacred and everything is holy and there's this union almost magic this this magical relationship and you have a one man and one woman and they fulfill this joint destiny and they're equal in the lord true soulmate and soul yeah all all that that hyper romanticism taken to the nth degree so so what you have here where nephi is writing the book is this transition between those two Mm -hmm. separate views on marriage and sexuality and 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 all that kind of stuff and you know I was really surprised to see those thoughts developed as early as 98. I thought those came like more in the, in the, in the 19-teens and stuff like that. Um, you know, because there were still a lot of polygamists hanging around at the time. And well, he, we were, he was a, um, an author, you know, kind of an artist. Maybe yeah. he was a little ahead of his time. Well, he would have been younger. You know, to him, the polygamists would have been like the... The old know, guard. The old, yeah, the old generation. <laughs> and... Um, and we were debating before we recorded whether or not polygamy shows up. It may or may not in the book. We're, it's not real clear. It's, well, actually, yeah, you're right. Polygamy is not real clear in the book. Be- because because they're, they're one of the characters does remarry, but it's after his wife has died. And it never, it never says whether or not they're sealed or not. Right. So that's sort of a normal sort of, you know... Yeah, event. they like each other, but it doesn't say whether they're still... Whether they still have that marriage Right, bond. they meet again in the... In the um, spirit world but right. it, but it doesn't make but, it but clear. he pretty much just avoids the whole topic yeah. altogether so so i was surprised to see that sort of how quickly I, you know, I knew during that period we were transitioning out of the polygamy phase but how quickly in this book and probably that's one of the reasons this book was successful because it gave a new narrative to, mm-hmm. to latch on to and and tied that in with the, with those with those doctrinal elements now the one I was referring to before, um, whose cousin is it? Um, it was it Rachel was is Heinrich's cousin. Heinrich's cousin that he meets up with. She's in Minnesota, and she goes to the temple and you know lives out this life, but she never marries. Yes, and even then, though she was beautiful. Even though she was, yeah, she was a. <laughs> it wasn't because it wasn't because she was ugly. Yeah. Yeah, they made that point several times. She was just so busy doing genealogy and temple work. Who has time for men? Come on. She she never um, found the right one. Right. Because she said she had solace with prayer. Like, she wanted to. He implied that she wanted to. to It was through no fault of her own. Right. It made that absolutely clear. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't her fault that she couldn't find a man to marry. She had guys wooing her, but, but she couldn't give herself to them. And she didn't know why. Right. Until... The spirit world. Yes, so, so of course. In the spirit world. She she marries somebody who had died when he was on a mission, 
And his mother explains that she died. He died because he had been tempted on his mission. And I want to so, table that for just a minute. Okay, let's, let's come back. That's to that. such a good a good one. Yeah. Yes. But, um, so, but the did, the strange thing to me was they got their temple work done. Uh huh. Somebody did their temple work. How in the world did somebody do their temple work? They had never met in the earth life. No, they'd never met. Because at that time, they they practiced sealing people who ne- had never met. Well, I don't think they did at that they, time. I think that was way earlier. No, they still did. Well, I wondered that about that, but it seems like, I mean, I've heard some people talk about the sealing as not so much to a specific person, but into the celestial family. So they really? either, by complete um, chance, those two were sealed um on on earth or perhaps they were sealed to somebody else and they were just sealed up into the family so since they liked each other in the spirit world they're like yippee Wait, no i think it was hold on about, hold, hold on i've never heard of this <laughs> no before. i haven't the spirit either. family they, they seal people to the spirit family well that might be just a more um recent thing um i had had a friend at one point whose parents um I believe weren't sealed, but she and her husband and family um, were sealed. And it was a lot of distress that they hadn't been sealed to the parents. So when they spoke to higher leaders in the church, they were told that it's being sealed to the church family. They don't necessarily have to be sealed to their own parents because they were afraid, I guess, that they'd be floating in the nebula if they weren't anchored in by something. So they were assured they were anchored into the celestial family. Because the the practice way I understand it right now is that you know, let's say you're a woman who gets around and you've had eight kids by eight guys. Um, they'll seal you to every single one of them. And then they will seal the, the, the offspring to the father, the biological father and the biological mother. Um, so that, that's current. Those that are dead? For, for those people who are dead. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was going to say that doesn't seem like it would work. No, but Zilpa's our- right. And, um, it was a practice during the early part of the church to, let's say that you had a kid. Who was 16. By the way, John is pointing at Robin. Yeah, Robin. I'm sorry. Robin, you have a kid that died when he was 16, and I had a daughter who died when she was 15. We might get together and seal our two children together. The 19th century, they did that. Or better yet, you have a daughter that's 15, and I'm married to Zilf, and I come to you, a courtin', (laughs) and um, I marry your 15-year-old dead daughter. Um, That was common, too. Ew. Yeah, it's it's a little, little, little creepy. But... He does imply in the book that the the because he talks about what people do all the time when they're dead, which is kind of interesting. They have houses. They they do have houses. That's, well, many that mansions. Was str- very strange to me. Um, but but they would go and do genealogy work, and then somehow that he doesn't describe, pass it down to like mortal beings. So I guess he implies there's this conduit somewhere where, like, interesting s- spirits are passing. Hey, you need to get these two married together. One of the things I thought was kind of interesting about that ceiling between Rachel and David was the fact that they were eagerly awaiting and they were allowed to get very close so they could almost watch it in the temple, which, you know, you always hear those stories, um, you know, when you do baptisms for the dead and, oh, you know, you know, wanting someone to make themselves present to you and and to, you know, love you and adore you because you're doing their work. David was the guy that Rachel was marrying and and he says to her, "And dear, the work is being done for us in the temple of our God. Yes, right now it is being done. Come, Rachel, let us go and be as near as we can. Yes, we have permission. This is the temple of this is the temple. God's messengers are here and his spirit broods in and around the holy place. Do you see them clearly, Rachel?" Yes, we shall not forget them when they too come to us in the spirit world. 
but we shall give them a welcome such as they have never dreamed of. Definitely. They make a really big deal about the celebrations of the people who did the work for the dead. They yeah, are going to be ahead um, socially in the afterlife. Yeah. Uh, socially, that's such a perfect way to put it because they describe just the sad, forlorn people getting up there and like, oh, I nobody's cheering for me. I, I don't get do any anything. hugs. <laughs> I didn't do my genealogy. <laughs> um, on that note, they also talked a lot about missionary work, especially missionary work beyond the veil, mm-hmm. and um, which I, I think is a is probably doctrinally one of the best things of the book to sort of explain Mormon doctrine in terms of this um, gradation of spirits, which is an important concept that there are people who are sort of an infinite grade of of development. And, and that sort of explains the mortal existence to some extent, explains what happens, that Mormons have done away with, with the traditional heaven and hell because there, there are all these, char- these, these levels. And here's on page 143, um, Nephi says, As there are graduations of righteousness and intelligence in the spirit world, there must be a, f- a vast field of usefulness for preaching the gospel, training the ignorant, helping the weak. As in the world of mortality, the work is carried on by those who have accepted the gospel and who have conformed their lives to its principles. So in the spirit world, the righteous find pleasant and profitable employment in working for the salvation of souls. So that's Which is sa- what they still believe today. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I was quite amazed at how the core doctrine of this book has not changed. The church itself has tried to distance itself from it, and he says some like nasty things in the book marginally nasty about like the Methodists and stuff. I when I read that I, I sort of had a chuckle because the church now here he, this book sort of outlines the way that the church is unique in its teachings. This gradation of souls, this migration through this eternal existence, you know, eventual on to celestial reward. And he doesn't even talk about be- deification in this book. It never Mm-mm. it never comes up. No. But here's this uniquely sort of beautiful Mormon doctrine. But the church today mm-hmm has sort of put all that aside and and just wanting to be another Christian sect, but with authority. You know, So the why you have to be a Mormon is because you have to have baptism from the right person, not because, look, we have all these unique and beautiful doctrines. Mm-hmm. Although I think in those like many poems that were really hard <laughs> to follow in the very end, there is something about, um, maybe it was as if gods, but there was some mm-hmm. plurality of gods mentioned. Well, his his preface preface to go along with what John was just saying, um, the first thing he writes is a religion to be worthwhile must give satisfactory answers to the great great questions of life. What am I? Whence came I? What is the object of this life? And what is my destiny? Yeah, I I, I really like the book for this point because it in sim- simple language fleshes out the core of what it means to be Mormon. As I think those of us who grew up that way, understand it, not the way we publicly face ourselves. And I don't know why the church feels the necessity to distance itself from this stuff. I guess the apologists would say they don't, blah, blah, blah. You just have to look in the right place. But, but you know, I, I feel like this stuff, you know, like he has that one point that they sing, um, um, Oh, My Father, oh, yeah. or, or whatever that song Oh, is. My Father. Um, and the person hears it, and that... You know, that speaks truth to him, but we almost sing that song with embarrassment today. We still sing it, but it's, and that's the one that says, you know, logic and I, if I have a father, I have a mother and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. 
Yep. Oh wait, so there was so, there was one that you that I tabled. Oh yes. Because I want to talk about why the Mormon God is a bastard again. It was the son, um, the the um, so so David, David, the one that Rachel ended up marrying in the in the um <clears throat> spirit world, who she hadn't met until then. Um, his his mother had met Rachel in the temple and told her the story of of David's death, which was David had gone on a mission. And he was killed on his mission. And and his mother was very distraught by this and saying, you know, how, you know, why couldn't you protect him, God? He was on his mission serving you. And her, she realized that it was because he was being tempted on his mission that God actually saved him from himself by killing him, by having right. him killed. Which sort of undermines the whole plan, <laughs> the whole plan, right? If God's going to knock people off right before they sin, doesn't that... <laughs> destroy the whole premise of the book it seems to yes i don't Uh, understand why that is even in here well because it seems like that's why they have the earth life right for the test you got to be allowed to fail it yeah i don't get it but god's a jerk in this book i mean rupert that was his name right rupert yeah david is the missionary or are you talking about rupert rupert Rupert. um you know he builds his farm up and then Mm. he loses it all because he's a successful farmer the musician guy he goes deaf he loves loves music music. and god doesn't want him to we know why that happens though indulge himself with music yes because he loves music too much right and he so he has to be tried so he can then be the music director in the temple in the, in spirit, the world. spirit world. So so God goes and even if you like something too much, you know, she'll die or your crops will fail or yes. This this um this sort of idea that you can't be too happy otherwise God's going to come in and smite you. You right. know, um you can't get you can't invest yourself too much in one thing so that you're excellent at it. You're supposed to be more well-rounded and he actually uses that phrase you know the the rounded kind of personality is much more desirable right but i think that's kind of interesting because in the like the millennial phase if that's okay to talk about at this point they actually mentioned that that's how they decide who they assign to jobs is who excels and does best and i'm i thought well isn't it wouldn't it be better to have someone that's really worked very hard at one thing i mean i'd rather have marie curie you know curing cancer than, you know, someone who is really good at a whole lot of things and not so good at <laughs> curing uh, yeah. cancer. So, yeah, let's talk about the millennial phase because there was two books as I was reading this book that kept coming to mind over and over again, especially in this chapter. The first one was Thomas More's Utopia, and the second one was um, um, Ayn Marks. Rand's um, Atlas Shrugged. Oh. Um, which are both kind of crappy books in my mind, but the, the you're, same You're, you're going to get themes. some, like, Bombs in the mail now. Yes, no kidding. The, uh, all the the Randian uh, objectivists or whatever they're called. Um, yeah, the because there's this. Let, let, let's take um, um, Ayn Rand's ideas first. This idea of this super uber people that that everything happens because ninety percent of the world is lazy and stupid, but there's these really smart people who go make everything happen. And those are the people who deserve the the highest reward. That theme um, permeates this this whole book. Yeah. Um, and 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 Utopia comes in in the explanation of the of the 
the millennium. It, it, the, I swear there are phrases that he lifted straight off Tom, um, <sighs> Sir Thomas More, but I have to go back and read it. When they're describing this, this utopian worker's paradise, but why, why it's not sort of communism. He doesn't ever use communism. Well, wouldn't it be somewhat Marxist, at least when I've talked like this with my stepmother, who was a sociology professor back east, she referred me to Marx. I haven't finished the book yet, so I'm not an expert, but that's what she calls me when I talk about it. Hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are certainly those ideas. But, but what was most fascinating about when he describes what a worker's paradise is, right? Big factories, everybody's dressed in white, there's electricity. It's clean. He describes like today, you know, from him in the 19th, in the 19th century, when the world is covered in soot and ash, you know, for him, his paradise is like what we have today. Yes. yes. And uh, that, that struck me a lot. And like you said, he mentions electricity, um, that, that all the buildings would have, would have electricity and, and that they would be clean. Um, and wasn't there an ether line that was supposed to be more advanced than the electricity? And I thought it was, yeah, there were anyway. some things that I didn't quite understand. And yes, cause I guess it's far more advanced. I know the millennium. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, in, the, in the millennium, the, the, the setup is that the king of Poland comes over to the, the Lord's city, I guess it is. And um, they still were riding horses because they prefer that way as opposed to moving by electric carriage or yeah. whatever. They could enjoy the journey. And I guess they, they took the king of Poland there so that, so I mean, Nephi did it that way so that we could be like the visitors to this millennial city. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a common literary device. You have to have an unknown character walking through to represent us. But. Right. Yeah, they so, show this this workers' utopian paradise where they they only you know, and it, but they have resurrected beings there. Yeah, Socrates. Yeah, and George Washington, <laughs> definitely, who, who are teaching the kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah what better history teachers? <laughs> um, yeah, and, 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 and like, there's one point where they go into a chair factory, and they explain that they have machines that can immediately pop out good chairs, but some people carve them just because that's what they like to do. Definitely. <laughs> so, so, and that's where he's trying to work out that paradisical, you know, what exactly do people do um, with all their time? Well, yeah, and it's interesting because they still have a monetary system, which seemed kind of interesting that it was this interesting balance between having a monetary system and, and kind of, you know, kind of a more uh, consecrated life. Um, I, for one thing, you know, you think everyone's equal. He was trying to explain why, why some people had so much better than some others, or at least differently than others. And so uh, whose mansion was it? I, uh, anyway, there was a mansion where they described there was beautiful paintings. The artist. No, yes. it was the author. Oh, oh yeah, the, the author. author. That's true. Yes, that's right. Okay, they go to an author, <laughs> the, the most wonderful author in the millennium. And he has this beautiful <laughs> home statues with statues and, and paintings, paintings and, and apparently antiques. Yeah, expensive stuff. Yeah, but they explained it isn't because he is any more righteous. It's because it, it is these beautiful things that inspire him to his best creation. Right, so he deserves them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, you yeah, know, you got to look after your own, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The the writer was the the pinnacle position in the yes. millennium. <laughs> I, I found that part that talks about the the belching, um, the chimneys belching forth their blackness and poison into the atmosphere. Our city is clean, and the air above us is as clear as that above forests or fields. And then he talks about this was pretty um, um, futuristic, I think. Um, we use electricity for heat also. We get it direct from the earth 
They have it generated by water power um, from falls and the waves of the sea. And they also learned how to collect um, energy from the sun, heat from the sun. Yeah, and you, you do have to remember that um, during at the time this book was written, that's when everybody burned coal. And it was yeah. awful. It was a miserable, thing. So that miserable was a thing. big problem they were trying to solve at that time. Right. So, you know, right. so electricity was around, um, like, um, cars, you know, gas powered cars were around, but they really hadn't taken off. So, so, you know, uh, somebody read the newspapers would be aware of them. So I, I thought as far as a futurist goes, he did okay. I thought yeah, so. Yeah, he did. And so, did you hear the number of temples that he saw as being a mon- millennial number? Yeah, was 100. It 100, yeah. Uh, he, holy cow, he would have been so pleased. When did we pass that up? The millennium. Yeah. And we just didn't know it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, all in all, I think I think the book gave a good representation of the ideas of, you know, the Mormon millennium and the, the Mormon um, rejection of hell. And he, he, he went into that, you know, the people sort of suffered because they were aware of their own, you know, state of sin as opposed to this lake of brimstone or, or whatever and and sort of fleshing it out i i i, I thought it was a, de- a decent job um yeah. yeah overall i i actually kind of enjoyed it and partly because of the perspective it gave and you know i've never read a, a fictional mormon book this old and it was just really interesting to see his perspective and what he thought um would, would the the Especially the millennium. That was just fascinating. Well, and, uh, you know, one thing we didn't address in there, uh, you know, we talked about his ideals, uh, you know, in the white factory, but very much that, that I, I, I got the, the strong sense of that rural Utah and what they were working for, you know, that, that hard work and building up a homestead and being self sufficient and growing your own alfalfa and, and all that stuff sort of plays out. Over Definitely. and over in the book, it's very clear. You know, that he's writing from a, a rural Utah perspective of, of the time, and and to see some of those or those thoughts percolating, which are still permeate the culture, especially along this the corridor, was 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 really fascinating. Definitely, and when those things fail, it is for your own good. It is for your benefit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and things that would have been, you know, when was there? When was the fail? Wasn't it eighteen ninety eight? The big bank failure um, of that time. I I can't remember all the depressions and recessions, but you know, so things like uh, railroad speculation and failure of the banks would have been things that would have been very current to you know to him at the time. Not not a real controversial book. I did call God a name again. Uh, oh, let's come up with a little bit of you controversy. Just said he, was, he was mean, right? Or a jerk? Yeah, or a jerk. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Let's get some controversy. What, um, what's con- controversial? I don't. Well, you were talking about the blacks, which I that had had escaped me. So the one controversy that I, you know, my pet peeve ir- uh, irritation of the book, um, besides promoting mediocrity, was um, the sexism. Because definitely it was sexist, but it came, became the most obvious in my book, uh, which is a recent, very recent edition, is page 103 where they're talking about um Cigna and I believe she may be with Rachel I'm not sure but it's definitely Cigna who is preaching to the other women in spirit prison and they're trying to explain the gospel to the women in spirit prison uh, in the spirit world and she says we shall be pleased to talk with you we are not very wise but we may always ask the brethren who are wiser for more light right Oh, yeah, I mean, shiver. 
he he is sort of a product of his time, I, I suppose. He does give the 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 one character where she independently goes to the temple and does the work and stays independent. So at what, least Ra- Rachel. Yeah, Ra- Rachel. Yeah, but the, she does temple work pretty much her whole life. But she does, and there was the one line. I wish I could go back and find it where um she goes to say it's as if my life's been on. And, and it was like, then they finish it, like she's been waiting, or her life's been on hold, because that she said that her lo- earth life was as if she was waiting. She was on hold her entire earth life, because she didn't have a man. Yeah, that that mm. was that was pretty well, clear. I, I, that, don't, that I don't think it says she didn't have a man. She needed that, that connection, she was waiting. That, that marriage. Yeah. yeah, she was she was waiting. Right, I'm um, sure it didn't say directly, because she didn't have a man. But um, th- that was an implication through one of the, the, like the things blacks. about the, the book was oftentimes areas of the of the of their lives were hyper condensed. So he was trying to give this view, and he I, he even states it sometimes where there's this long view that for us life is this very short, just this one incident. So things that seem unjust in the world, or where you can spend your life waiting, or you can lose something seemingly unjustly, it all works out in the end because it. So, it's just a blink. So I, I didn't read that. Although I think it would be a, a, a valid idea at the time that you know, a woman is validated by a man. Hell, it's still around today. But um, I, I think, I think his more the bigger point he was trying to make is that sort of we have to fit into this God's puzzle and we have to play our role. Yes. And and clearly the women's role is to encourage the men, you know, to reach their full potential. But I think it could have been a lot more sexist than it was for yeah, the time it, 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 it was It could have been more. It could have been more. So. Definitely that's true. It, it wasn't too bad that way. All Not right. too bad. Well, Zilpha and Robin. Yep. Thanks for uh, uh, walking us through another book. Uh, um, I think generally we, uh, well, at least I, I recommend it. Yeah, I think it's worth a read. Um, yeah, definitely. Not, not too hard to read And either. especially if you're uh, new to Mormonism and trying to understand sort of those those concepts, because I, I think a lot of the things to me were familiar, you know, these sort of, oh, these yes, sort of doctrines and folk doctrines and, and speculation that you hear in church growing up in the, um, are, are, are really expressed strongly in the book. Yeah, and it's... It, and just to, as a side note, um, pre-correlation, um, one reason why I was so interested in this book was because uh, reading through my mom's journal after she died, she mentioned in the journal, it mentions that she was called on a stake mission. She would have been in her mid-20s. She married when she was 27, which was really an old maid back in the day. Um, it, early 50s, I think is what I said, or mid-50s. And her stake mission was she presented added upon. Really? She would travel from ward to ward and give a presentation about added upon. And so as I read this book, it had so much... Because um, you were thinking of your mom. Yeah, so much personal meaning because all of a sudden, my mother's became very clear to me the things she said and the things she did. And she, in fact, put a page in front of each of our journals that gave our pre-existent story um, and what went on with us there. And, and so anyway, I thought this was really fun. And thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Robin. Hey, you're welcome. All right. As always, the discussion uh, continues on the website at mormonexpression.com. Uh, go there to check out things like the cruise and to uh, to get your tickets to the live show August 6th. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.